Amen. Well, last week we talked about the Eastern Gate. We talked about the Dome of the Rock. We talked about the Mosque of Omar. We talked about the tablets, that, that is the Ten Commandments, that are within the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about the Shekinah glory of God. And we talked about how this all is a part of the rebuilding of the new temple in Jerusalem. We talked about the Temple Institute and how priests are being prepared. And later on, we're going to talk about the heifers because uh, some of you are, well, you know a thing or two about livestock. And uh, there's uh, the heifers, the blemish-free red heifers that are already alive, already being prepared for sacrifice in the new temple. We'll talk about in the future what those requirements are and when those sacrifices will begin, but we know it soon. We also talked about the outer courtyard of the Dome of the Rock in, in verse 2, and we talked about the year 1967. Some of you remember that. I happened to be in the Marine Corps in 1967, uh, but I was in Vietnam, not in the Middle East. And the Six-Day War in 1967, Jerusalem was recaptured for the first time since 586 B.C. General Moshe Dayan, hero in Israel even to this day, you may remember him, a patch over one eye uh, from a war wound, and uh, he let the Muslims keep control of that 35-acre parcel that we call the Dome of the Rock. And today... It's just a flat area of pavement with a very small gazebo, a very small gazebo, something that you would see in somebody's backyard, uh, just just tiny little gazebo. And if you look down through that gazebo, you see the flat uh, stone there uh, that uh, most likely was uh, where uh, the uh, where where the ark was was laid. And he could never explain why he didn't just take over all of the Dome of the Rock. He very well could. It was a military victory. But he just was compelled somehow by God to leave that 35 acres uh, to the Muslims. And to this day, the outer court of the temple remains turned over to the nations, we read in verse 2. So let's pick up where we left off in verse 3. Jesus said, I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. Why are there two witnesses? Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, the the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13.1. Now you Bible scholars, you remember Joshua. Joshua, who, um, uh, who was sent in two spies to the promised land. It's recorded in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. You remember the two angels in the tomb on Easter morning in John chapter 20. Pastor Daniel did a, just a magnificent teaching on that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, Mark chapter 6. These two witnesses are compared to the two 
olive trees that we read about in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. The reason I'm giving you so, many, so much scripture is because we want to know what the Bible says. We don't, know, we don't necessarily need to know what some popular author says. Over the years, over the decades, I've read some of the best-selling books on, us, on eschatology. And as those books get older and older and older, they become increasingly irrelevant because the authors of those books tried to uh, retrofit what was happening at that particular time to what the Bible had to say. And so we need to be very careful that we don't try to read in too much to what is happening today, even in the case of Ukraine, in the case of China. Uh, we, we have to be very, very careful. We, we need to stay focused on simply what the word says. Well, I'm also trying to go through this in a chronological order, so sometimes we're going back to Old Testament prophecies, such as the case in Zechariah chapter 4. Well, those two witnesses are compared to these two olive trees that provide a never-ending supply of oil, and they represent, as we see in verse 4, the Holy Spirit's anointing in ministry. Olive oil was the common fuel of that time. So in association with the lampstand, this was, this was very, very logical. Olive oil was what the, the fuel that was burned in the lamps that, uh, that were burning in, in the temple. We know that from Exodus chapter 27. But before the olives could yield their oil, they were beaten off trees just with a stick. There's nothing at the end of the stick, just, as a, just with a stick as it is being done today in Israel, in Jordan, in other countries around the world. And then once they fell to the ground, they were collected and they were crushed. The olives did not yield their oil until they were crushed. And this, in fact, represents what will happen to these two witnesses, to these two olive trees. Uh, a month from today, some of you will be with Robert and I in Israel. And we will be going to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there are olive trees. And some of these olive trees are 2,000 plus years old. And so it is just incredible to think that we will be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps, perhaps at the base of the very same tree that Jesus prayed in that Garden of Gethsemane before he went to Golgotha. Um, so who are these two, two, these two witnesses? Who are these two men? Mentioned in Zechariah, verse 4, clothed with burlap, verse 3. Uh, they had the power to bring about drought. They had the power to scorch anybody that would dare cross their paths. We read in verses 5 and 6, who are these men? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Bible says that Elisha, you remember Elisha on Mount Carmel? He called down fire from heaven. He destroyed 100 soldiers. You know, I think there would be some, uh, some brave warriors in Ukraine that would like to have that kind of fire, that kind of power tonight. Just calling down fire from heaven and poof, the enemy is eliminated. You remember him. Elisha prayed also that there would be no rain for three and a half years, the Bible tells us in James chapter 5. Elisha never died we know he rode away to heaven on a, in a fiery chariot, Second um, Kings chapter 2. What a way to go. What a way to go. You don't die. 
you just get behind those stallions and you get in that fiery chariot. Wow, that's better than any lowrider. That's better than any, any SUV. And off you, that's even better than, than Henry's van. That is really, really cool that he's taking to Arizona tomorrow, but it's even better than that. And he rode that fiery chariot on up to heaven. The Bible promises that Elijah will Elijah, Elijah will return. How do we know? The Bible tells us so in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So it seems that Elijah is one of these two witnesses. He's the only one that meets all the qualifications that fills the bill for one of these two witnesses. We can't say that for certainty. We don't know that he is unequivocally the man that is one of these two witnesses but he comes closer than anybody else. So who's the second? Well, do you remember Moses? Uh, Moses commanded darkness, he commanded frogs, he commanded death, and he commanded the water of the Nile to turn to blood. Remember that story back in Exodus chapter 7, verse 12? Uh, Moses, representing the law, also appeared with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus went up to heaven after he was resurrected. Read about that in Matthew chapter 17. Do you remember the account of Satan and Michael, the archangel, one of the most powerful archangels in heaven, arguing over the body of Moses? Why possibly to prevent his resurrection as the second witness, Jude verse 9. There's only one chapter, so it's Jude verse 9. So Moses is very possibly, and I would posit that most likely he is the other witness. Be that as it may, we don't know for certain, but these two men certainly meet these qualifications. The Bible says that these two witnesses will be killed after three and one half years to the day of preaching. The Bible says in verse 7, they will be killed by the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. Now you remember Gehenna or hell. There is no release ever from hell, but the bottomless pit there is. He will come back up out of this bottomless pit in verse 7. And not only will these two witnesses be killed by this beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit during this time of the tribulation, but these two witnesses, having prophesied in Jerusalem, will be denied a decent burial and their bodies will lie there, not in state, but they will just lie on the streets of Jerusalem. I saw a picture last night of some of the casualties of war in Ukraine. And I it just was, I was moved, deeply moved, when there were three elderly women uh, maybe even as old as I am. I mean, they were really elderly. Elderly women carrying buckets to collect snow to melt so they would have drinking water, and they were walking past the bodies of those that had been killed in this horrendous war that is happening right now in Ukraine. Jerusalem is where these bodies will lie, and Jerusalem is the only city in the Bible, Old or New Testament, that God calls his own. Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city over which Jesus wept compassionately. Jerusalem is now, at this point in time, during the tribulation, likened to Egypt and Sodom because the people are rejecting the Messiah. They are rejecting Jesus Christ, we read in verse 8. The Bible says in verse 9, for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. Really? All peoples? All nations? All tribes? All languages? Now, I lived in a little nation which has a greater diversity of languages per capita than any other nation in the world, Vanuatu. And there are lots of tribal languages, lots of them. Many of these languages do not even have John 3.16 translated into their tribal tongue. I speak the national language of Bishlama. Someday I'll speak it to you. It's a fun language. It'll put a smile on your face, I guarantee it. But uh, there are many, many tribal languages, and most of the people, they speak their tribal languages. Some are spoken by only a few dozen or only a couple of hundred. Really, every language, every tribe, all nations will stare at their body in verse 9? Is that allegorical? No. No. This verse has confounded Bible scholars for centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years, until the event, the advent of GPS, satellites, uh, satellite news, cell phones, and the computer. This is the only time that people rejoice during the tribulation. The only time during these seven years that the people rejoice are when these two witnesses, most likely Moses and Elijah, are laying in the streets, killed by the beast. But after a worldwide holiday, which even includes the exchange of gifts from the people around the world. They are so happy these people are dead, so happy these prophets are killed by the beast that there's a worldwide celebration, gifts are exchanged, parties take place, we know, according to verse 10, but in a complete surprise to this celebration, after three and one-half days, the party stops. People around the world watch on their cell phones, on their computers, on big screen televisions, wherever it may be, they actually watch live these two witnesses rise from the dead. And not only rise from the dead and stand up after being dead for three and a half days, if you remember the wonderful sermon from Pastor Daniel after three days, it was thought by the Jewish uh, rabbis and so forth that the spirit would leave the body. They have been dead now for three and a half days, but they rise, stand up, and they keep rising all the way up to heaven. Verses 11 and 12. The world is dumbfounded. These witnesses are examples to us regarding how we should be living. We are to be sharing the gospel with people. That is the reason for our existence. It's not so that we will just 
be engaged in our favorite hobby. It's not so that we'll just hang out with our favorite friends. It's not so that we will be active politically or environmentally, although all those things are good. The reason that we are here is to share the treasure, the eternal treasure that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and share that good message, that message of hope, that good news with others here in our neighborhood, across the street, and around the world. So, uh, there are examples to us. We may be beat up emotionally, we may be beat up physically, we may be beat up verbally, but, 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 we too will rise again. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Witnessing is the best way to see our faith revived and renewed, just as these two witnesses were revived and renewed. Well, the Bible says in verse 13, at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there are those theologians that would posit that 7,000 people, a more accurate translation, is 7,000 leaders. I don't know. I don't know if it's 7,000 leaders, 7,000 heads of families, or just 7,000 people. We don't know. But we do know that at least 7,000 people in Jerusalem were killed by the earthquake. And not only is the world shaken up uh, emotionally by the resurrection of the two witnesses, but it's shaken physically by this great earthquake. This earthquake may originate in a fault called the Rift Valley Fault. We've talked about that running from North Africa all the way up through Israel, and it goes right smack dab through the middle of the Mount of Olives. And we know that an even greater earthquake will yet take place after this earthquake, and that is when Jesus Christ comes down and we know that the mission has landed not on some crater in the moon, but right on the top of the Mount of Olives, Mount Moriah. You remember that where Abraham, Temple Mount, remember Abraham, where Abraham sacrificed or was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. He laid his Isaac down. He laid that which he loved the most down on that altar. He was ready to, to kill that dream in obedience to the God that he loved. Although he loved, although he loved Isaac so much, so much, he was his promised son, a miracle child. He was willing to personally drive a knife through his heart because of his love for his heavenly father. So it's that same mountain. And when Jesus touched down, there will be an even greater earthquake. Now the last of the seven trumpets is sounded by an angel. The Bible says in verse 15, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Some of you musicians, some of you former or current quiet choir members might recognize this from Handel's Messiah, sung often at Christmas. At this point, there is no 
turning back. So the question arises, how did the people respond? Did the people repent? Nope, nope. The Bible says the nations were angry in verse 18. The Bible says, then in heaven the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Wow. Flashback to Indiana Jones, I believe it was, in the Temple of Doom, is that right? When the ark was opened, and oh my goodness, all kinds of gamma rays went out, and death rays, and eyes melted, and all kinds of things that only Hollywood could come up with. But the Ark of the Covenant, containing the Shekinah glory of God, containing a bowl of manna, containing Aaron's rod, containing the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. This was opened. This was opened. The Ark of the Covenant, as you know, is the least seen item in the temple. Why? Because it's the most holy item in the temple. It's not that big. It represents the presence of God. Not even the priests, not even the highest priests had access to the Ark. Only one priest the very highest priest, and only one day a year was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple and to approach the Ark of the Covenant to make a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people. And you remember we talked about the horns on the Ark, and the purpose was part of the blood sacrifice. Otherwise, anyone entering the Holy of Holies was guaranteed to God to die. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. And who would make sure of that? God. Exodus chapter 26, verses 30 through 34 in Leviticus chapter 16. Now the terrible hailstorm that we read about in Revelation 11, verse 19, sets the stage for what John is about to witness in chapter 12. And so here we go. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance, John writes. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Verse 2. She was pregnant. And she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Verse 7, then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Verse 9, this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, 
or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Verse 11, and they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Verse 13, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings, like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she, should, there she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 15, then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Verse 18, then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Wow, what on earth is this all about? Well, let's unpack it verse by verse. So who is this woman in verse 1? The only contextual and theological answer regarding the identity of this woman is Israel. Israel. Israel fills the bill contextually. Israel fills the bill theologically. Contextually, while the church is the bride of Christ, you know that. We've been down, we've talked about that quite some time. Isaiah and Hosea identify Israel as the wife of Jehovah. Theologically, if we apply the principle of first mention. In other words, when we have a question, rather than going to a commentary written by man, let's go to the commentary written by God. And the principle of first mention, it also applies to legal arguments in courts, federal and state courts, and local courts across our, across our land, is when a particular term is first mentioned in the Bible. So, when were the sun, moon, and stars first mentioned? The sun, moon, and stars together. You remember the dream that that young man by the name of Joseph had when he was just a, a youngster? The Bible gave the interpretation of that dream. The sun, the Bible explains, represented Joseph's father. 
Jacob, Israel. The moon represented his mother, Rebekah. The stars represented his 11 brothers. How do we know? The Bible tells us so in Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. So throughout the remainder of the book of Revelation, the dragon that we read about here in verse 3 represents Satan, as do so many other references in the Bible, including Isaiah 27, 1, 51, 9, so forth. The seven heads that we read about in verse 3 refer to the city where the Antichrist will reign. The city referred to throughout history, both secular history and biblical history, known as the city of seven hills, is Rome. Rome. The seven heads refer to a geographical place, and the ten horns that we read about in verse 3 refer to Satan's political base. So the horns, like the ten toes of Daniel 2, represent the ten nation confederation that will emerge from the old Roman Empire. God used the prophet Daniel to reveal the rise and fall of great empires even down to our modern times. This is not something that just some preacher has thought up. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that God had made him a king of kings and described the very image envisioned by the king in a dream. Do you remember that? Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. He had a dream, and Daniel interpreted that dream, a great statue that had a head of gold. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, verse 38, you are this head of gold. How did Daniel know? God told him. The other parts of the great image are symbolized by the great empires to follow after the Babylonian empire. The prophet Daniel, in God's word, reveals that there will also be an end-time Roman empire. And that empire, this end-time Roman empire, is going to play a crucial role in end-time conflicts. Now, I am not suggesting that one of those conflicts will be what's happening in Ukraine right now. I am not suggesting that. But isn't it interesting how world leaders from China, from Russia, from uh, America, and from various European nations, as well as Ukraine, of course, are shuttling back and forth and attempting to cobble together some sort of a treaty, some sort of an agreement. And the Bible says that's exactly what's going to happen in the end times in the Middle East. So although we're focused on Europe right now and also focused on Asia right now, particularly Taiwan, keep your focus on the Middle East. All reputable Bible scholars agree on their identity and their prophetic fulfillment. The head of gold, as we've talked about, represents the Babylonian Empire. That was from the year 625 to 539 BC. Next, I think I have a little uh, drawing there in your notes. Okay, good, thank you. Next came the Medo-Persian Empire from 558 to 330 BC. So we're coming closer to the time of Christ. This is represented by the chest and arms of silver. The belly and thighs 
of the bronze, uh, of, of bronze represented the Greek, Greco uh, Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great from 333 to 31 BC. And the two legs of iron represent the Roman Empire from 31 BC to 476 AD. I'm sorry, I think I put BC in your notes. Remember, I'm the one that types it finger, one finger at a time, spending more time than you really care to know. And I do make mistakes. So that is 31 BC to 476 AD. Finally, the 10 toes on the two feet of iron mixed with ceramic clay represents a future revival, that which has not yet come, of the Roman Empire. Now, how do we know that the feet of this image will continue into modern times, into these times that I believe are right around the corner that could happen very, very soon? Well, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, describes in, in great detail a great stone that smashes the image on its feet. He also describes the stone's meaning. Daniel 2, verse 44 says, during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut, out, cut, from, cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and the meaning is certain. In God's word, second chapter of the book of Daniel. So the end time power that will eventually dominate the Middle East will be a revived Roman Empire, not China, not Russia, not Iran or Iraq or the United States. It will be a revived Roman Empire. And this prophecy is also symbolized in the prophecies of Revelation and Daniel as a beast. Revelation 31, or Revelation 13, uh, Daniel 7, and Revelation 17, which we'll get to. Now, as you already know, Lucifer was the chief of all created beings in heaven. Not only was, the, was he the choir director, the worship leader, but he was the highest ranking angel in heaven. And he got to thinking one day, you know, I'm greater than all the other angels. God created me higher than everybody else, and we're all spending our time worshiping him. I think I need a little bit of, uh, I need a little bit of recognition. I, I'm a pretty good guy. I do all these things. I have great responsibility. I, I, He had an eye problem. And because of that eye problem, as you know, the rest of the story, when he rebelled against God, he took one third of the stars in the sky, verse four, representing angels, as we know, they were cast out of heaven. And how do we know? Luke chapter 10, verse 18, answers that question. So Satan's attempt to annihilate Israel is a fundamental theme of biblical and secular history. Whether it be through Cain, or Pharaoh, or Herod, or Hitler, Satan has been relentless to destroy God's people. So why? 
Why? Why have the Jews been perpetually persecuted from Old Testament through the New Testament, through modern history, and even through the tribulation? The answer is found in Revelation 12. The dragon is determined to devour the child. That's Jesus, clearly defined. The child of the woman. That's Israel. Jesus is the child of Israel. So if there is no Jerusalem, if Jerusalem can somehow be eliminated, if there is no Jerusalem, if there is no Israel, if there is no Jewish people, how could Jesus fulfill these prophecies? <laughs> Very simple. It can't happen. It's, it's impossible. How could he return to rule and reign his people in the new Jerusalem? Impossible. Can't happen. Therefore, the plan of the dragon is to keep the Messiah from returning to Israel by annihilating the Jews. Verse 4. The son who was to rule all nations and ascended to heaven is Jesus, as you read in verse 5. Now, although Satan was cast out of heaven, he still has access to heaven if, if, key word there, that little word, if, God allows. How do we know? You can read all about it in Job chapter 1. Remember the word Satan. Remember the meaning of it? means accuser. Accuser. And here we find it in Hebrew, accuser. But, but, but in order for him to accuse you and I, which he loves to do, he loves to accuse us. He delights in bringing our sins, my sins, my shortcomings, my knuckleheaded decisions to the attention of my heavenly father. He loves to point out what a, what a knucklehead I am. But in order for him to do that, in order for him to accuse me, Satan must be allowed limited access to God and only by God. Key, key principle there. So when the Antichrist enters the temple and demands to be worshipped, which he will, in the great tribulation, Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24, and the 1,260 days, exactly three and a half years, of unparalleled hostility against the Jews begin, as we read about in verse 6, we see why Jesus told the Jews to flee to the wilderness during this time. Matthew chapter 24, verse 25. I, I love this part. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, tells us exactly, exactly where this wilderness is. The Bible says, and I, and I quote, send lambs from Selah as tribute to the ruler of the land. Send them through the desert to the mountain of beautiful Zion. The, woman, the women of Moab are left like homeless birds at the, shallow, at the shallow crossings of the Arnon River. Verse 3, help us, they cry. Defend us against our enemies. Protect us from their relentless attack. Do not betray us now that we have escaped. Verse 4, let our refugees stay among you. Hide them from our enemies until the terror is past. Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now you Hebrew scholars, 
you Old Testament scholars know that Sela in the Hebrew language means rock. In Greek, Petra, Peter, the rock. But Petra is an actual place. Maybe you've been there. Robin and I have led our Bible college students to Petra on numerous occasions. A fascinating place. Petra is located in Moab, just as we read. That's present-day Jordan. Jordan is bordering Israel. And often when we lead tours of Israel, we've crossed the border and we've gone into Jordan. We've seen some of the Old Testament sites there. And we've also gone to Petra, which is one of the seven wonders of the, of the world. This city is incredible. It's not built. It's carved in stone out of solid stone. Speaking of Indiana Jones, they did some filming right there at the Treasury Building, probably the most famous building or carving in solid stone. Uh, so if you saw that movie, you saw the Treasury Building. It's very photographed. There's always camels in front of it. It's incredible. The, 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 the Petra, it, it, it's preserved. It's been preserved since ancient times because there's only one entrance into Petra. Now there is another way if you climb up sheer massive cliffs like climbing El Capitan, uh, but really, the only way to get in is through one entrance, a passageway that's, that's only 12 feet wide. 12 feet. Now, that's interesting, 12 feet. With its turns in this seek, seek in, the, in, in, with, in, in these turns, it's virtually impossible to navigate any motorized vehicle, particularly a tank. And I know a thing or two about tanks because that was my specialty as a Marine in Vietnam. My MOS, or my military occupational specialty, is anti-tank assault man. You give me a tank, I know how to assault it, and I know how to destroy it. I know the various weapons, I know how to go about it. But I never saw a tank in Vietnam. Not once, <laughs> at least an enemy tank. Saw a lot of friendly tanks, those good army tanks. But uh, and marine tanks, but not uh, not enemy tanks, uh, and so a tank cannot get in. A large motorized vehicle cannot get in. The only way is by foot, by camel, by donkey, or by horseback. And Robin and I have gone always by foot, by donkey, by horseback. Oh, there's one more way: by horse and buggy, which I would not recommend because it's the original cobblestone going in to Petra, and it is very very bumpy. And those buggies have no cushions, no springs, no shock absorbers. And you spend your time bouncing up and down the hallway and uh, your teeth fall out and all the rest. So that's the only way to get in. Now, when rewards are given to believers at the judgment seat of Christ, as we read about in Revelation 4, Satan, who you know, the accuser, says, why are they getting rewards? And the same thing is occurring right now on planet Earth. Satan whispers in your ear, whispers in my ear. You're not worthy to be blessed. You're not good enough to be used in ministry. David, who do you think you are sitting in front of this lovely fireplace in this beautiful church, in front of these wonderful, awesome, incredible people teaching the word of God? You are a loser because I know what you've done in the past. I know your thoughts. I know your deeds. I know your history. And you don't qualify at all. Oh, 
and I have to say, accuser, Satan, you're right. I don't qualify at all. I am only here by the grace of God. I'm only here because of the blood of the Lamb. Remember, there's a difference between condemnation, which comes from Satan, and conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit. The condemning work of Satan will always push you away from God. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit will always draw you closer to God. The, con the condemnation of Satan is always about self, falling short, not measuring up, hopelessness. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit is always about forgiveness, about moving forward, about God's glory and God's grace in verse 10. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is not, as you know, where we'll be judged for our sin because our sin, as you know, has already been forgiven, past, present, and future, already been forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The judgment seat of Christ, as you know, is the place where rewards are given out, crowns, we've talked about that, that will determine our ministry and our position in heaven. You have just the right position in heaven. You have just the right ministry in heaven. It's going to be a perfect fit. It's going to be a job made in, well, in heaven. It's perfect. Now, that's why we go about on this planet before that day simply loving God and loving people. Satan was defeated by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, we read in verse 11. He was defeated in heaven, and he can be defeated here on earth exactly the same way. First, through the blood of the Lamb. When the blood was applied, you historians remember, when the blood was applied to the doorpost in the shape of a cross, of the Jewish homes back in the book of Exodus, that saved the firstborn as the angel of death flew over Egypt. You could read more about that in Exodus chapter 12. Robin and I, years ago, brought back a little souvenir from Jerusalem, a mezuzah, in which scripture is placed. And in a good Jewish home, that mezuzah is placed in such a way that anyone coming into the home or out of the home will touch the mezuzah, representing touching the scripture, representing the scripture that we'll get to in a little bit, being bound on Orthodox Jews' wrists or hands and their forehead. We'll talk more about what that means. So those of you going to Israel with us next month, you will see Orthodox Jews with little black boxes, you know, about the size of a small cell phone, uh, wrapped around, not tape, but with leather straps, around their head, right on their forehead, and around their arm. Um, so, through the blood of the Lamb, uh, not on the basis of how much we've prayed, or how good we've been, or what we've done, or what we haven't done, but on our understanding of the blood of Calvary. 
It's not about anything we do or don't do. It's about what the Lamb of God has done for us. It's all about the blood. Secondly, the accuser is silenced when the blood is applied and the testimony of grace is shared. Just these two things, sharing the testimony of grace and applying the blood. So if you're trying to impress God with anything that you do or don't do, the accuser will beat you every time. You'll never win. It's when we say the word of my testimony is simply grace, amazing grace, that the accuser will be silenced. So verse 14, what are the two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness? Well, we don't know the identity of the two wings of the eagle. We don't know that, but we do know that God has used this terminology before. You remember Exodus chapter 19? The Bible says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I, I'm told that, that when a mama eagle uh, gets frustrated with the little baby chicks that refuse to go to work, they refuse to leave home, they've been there long enough, it's time to go out and do some work, it's time to catch some fish on your own, uh, and, and she gets tired of being poked by the sticks that are in the nest because well, there's just not room enough for everybody in, in the household, she gently pushes them out of the nest, <laughs> nudges them out of the nest. And they've never flown. And I'm told they flap their wings, flap their wings, and they scream and they cry, Mama, why did you doing this to me? What are you doing this? And Mama swoops down and catches the little eaglet in her wings. Interesting picture. There comes a time, there comes a time when God wants us to step out on faith. One more passage of scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob, it, Jacob is his special possession. He found them in his desert land, in an empty, howling wasteland. He surrounded them and watched over them. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. Like an eagle that rouses her chicks, in other words, pushes them out of the nest, and hovers over her young, so he spreads his wings to take them up and carried them safely on his pinions. The Bible says the Antichrist will chase after the Jews like a flood. Verse 15, I don't know if you've seen flash floods. I believe they happen from time to time here in Colorado. And a dry riverbed can be dry as a bone. And then within minutes, it can be a place of, of extreme danger when all the water gushing down the mountains comes and sweeps away everything in its sight. How many Jews will survive? Well, the Bible says that two out of every three will die. How do we know? Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. But, 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 although two-thirds die, one-third of Israel will finally give their lives to Jesus Christ and will enter the kingdom and the millennium. Finally, Bible, the Bible says that the earth will swallow the army of the Antichrist attempting to annihilate the Jews in verse 16. Wow. Our God reigns supreme. When he comes across an enemy, when he comes across somebody that's been picking on his children for a little bit too long, he says, I'm just going to open up the earth and swallow the whole army and then just close it back up again. It's happened in the past, and it will happen again. Wow. Can we at least start with Revelation 13? Can we do that? 
All right, Revelation 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were the names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast its own power and throne and great authority. Verse 3. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Verse 4, they worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast? They exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Verse 5. Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. Verse 6, and he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 8. And all the people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belonged to the, to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Verse 9. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Verse, 13, verse 11, then I saw another beast come out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all of the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. Verse 15, he was permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Six, six. I'm going to go with your permission about five minutes over time tonight. May I? Thank you. Even if you said no, I probably would anyway. <laughs> By 29 BC, the worship of Caesar had been instituted throughout the Roman Empire. 
We've talked about that. You know that. And by the end of the first century, Caesar Nero actually believed he was a god. The other Caesars didn't. They just said, well, okay, well, it's something that they're required to do, and we'll just kind of do it. But he really believed that he was a god. He was the first one. So beginning with his reign, everyone in the Roman Empire was required to go to one of the pagan temples every year and stand before a priest and confess that Caesar was Lord. Most people, they said, okay, another government uh, requirement, another bureaucratic uh, anchor around our, our neck, so to speak. They just went ahead and did it, didn't give much thought to it, but not, 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 not the Christians. As a result, over six million Christians, and that is a conservative number, over six million Christians were martyred in ten different waves of persecution because they would not follow this government edict. They did not follow this government law. And there has been times in our nation's history, and there will be times coming in our nation's history, when we must not obey government laws. Why? Because they violate the word of God. First and foremost, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Our leader is not the occupant of the White House, whether that be Republican or Democrat or whatever. Our leader is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, because they refused to go through this uh, bureaucratic requirement, they were martyred. But for those Christians who were suffering so terribly, terribly during these 10 waves of persecution under, under the Romans, the beast that John sees in this passage is the Antichrist, verse 1. And the Antichrist, the word Antichrist, literally means in place of Christ. John wrote that there are many Antichrists, not just one. There are many antichrists. He wrote, in fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, dear, dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the antichrist is coming, and already many such antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong to us. People are leaving churches not only in America, but around the world. And the Bible says it proves that they never were really part of us. We are commanded by the word of God to gather together. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday morning. But we are commanded by God to gather together. The church is the bride of Christ. And these people took that seriously in the first century. And they paid for it with their lives. So here in Revelation 13, this reference is not to the many antichrists, but to the antichrist. The sea in verse 1 refers to Gentile nations. This is true throughout the Bible. Whenever you read, you see the word the sea, uh, it, it's referring to Gentile nations. Uh, the land refers to Israel. So from this passage in verse 1, we know that the antichrist will not come from Israel. Revelation 17 says the beast will come from the ten Gentile nations that stem from the old Roman Empire. 
and, and that, old, that, that will make up the last uh, world empire. However, this doesn't necessarily mean that the Antichrist will be a Gentile. You see, he could be a Jew coming from Russia, for example. I'm not saying he's going to come from Russia, but there are many, many, many Jews in Russia, many synagogues in Russia. He could be a Jew coming from another nation in Europe. He could be. We don't know. Revelation 17 identifies the seven heads that we read about in verse 1 as the seven mountains of Rome. That city built on seven heads, seven hills. Um, throughout history, that's what Rome has been known for, and the Bible refers to Rome in that way. So the Antichrist government will be initially based in the city of Rome. Now, there are ten crowns, but there are only seven heads, we read in verse 1. Why? Because when the Antichrist comes to power, he will immediately take control of three of the ten-nation confederation. How do we know? Daniel 2, Daniel 7 tells us this in great detail. Throughout history, various men have tried to revive the old Roman Empire. But the Bible says this is not going to happen until the Antichrist comes on the scene. And the Bible says on each head were the names that blasphemed God. Verse 1, this image is blasphemous, it's hideous, it's ugly, and this is who he is, the devil incarnate. Not some cute little guy wearing red pajamas carrying a pitchfork. He is an abomination. He is the most ugly, despicable thing that anyone could ever imagine. Now, the four empires that ruled during this time, uh, that, that ruled during this time that Israel was a nation, are also described in as a glorious statue that we read about in Daniel chapter 2. But, but that is man's perspective. God's perspective is described in Daniel chapter 7. And God's perspective is this is a series of beasts. The same beasts described in this verse that we just read, verse 2. But these beasts are listed in the inverse order, in opposite order. The leopard that we read about in this passage in Daniel chapter 7 represents Alexander the Great's ability to pounce. Robin and I were doing some mission work in Africa a few months ago. We went on a short little safari, and we saw this spectacular leopard really close to us in a tree. And we got really, really close. And so the leopard worked his way down the tree, almost coming straight down with his claws digging into the bark of that, of that, uh, of that tree. Uh, and you could just see the muscles flexing in his body as he, he was holding his weight up just with his two paws digging into the bark of that tree. It, incredible. The bear represents the Medes and the Persians. The lion represents the Babylonians. So why are these listed in the inverse order? Because Daniel is looking ahead while John is looking back. Just like the windshield and the rearview mirror of, of your car. At this point in the tribulation, the Antichrist appears to be mortally wounded. We read in verse 3. Now according to... Um, 
Not going. Now, according to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, there's going to be an assassination attempt on the Antichrist. We see that here referred to in verse 3. Because the Antichrist is a false messiah, a counterfeit, if you will, of Christ, he will stage a false resurrection. Many theologians, many Bible scholars feel that this is a false resurrection because he is false, he is counterfeit, it'll be counterfeit resurrection, and people will follow and worship him because they will be awed by the power and the miracles that God has allowed him to to have, verses 3 and 4. But some Bible scholars believe that he truly will die and he will descend to hell, and they uh, take their position from Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. We don't know for certain, but we do know that just as Jesus Christ comes from heaven and is God, the Antichrist will be the incarnation of Satan, the dragon. People here are impressed by power, and they will follow those who display power, verse 4. But, but, but the power given to the Antichrist, given to the beast, will be limited by God for exactly 1,260 days, three and a half years, according to verse 5. So even while the beast is in power, even though the beast is in power, God will still be in control. God is in control throughout the tribulation, just as he is in control right now. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Revelation 11, 15, Revelation 12, 10 through 12. So the Bible says the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them in verse 7. Now it's important to remember here that there are three groups of people in the Bible referred to as God's holy people. Not just one group, but three different groups, also referred to as saints. In the Old Testament, this refers to Israel. In the New Testament, this refers to us, to the church. After the church is raptured, after we're caught up to meet our Lord in the air, it refers to those who are saved during the tribulation. Now, since Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, this is proof that the church will not be conquered. Therefore, this passage cannot be a reference to the church, but to those who are saved during the tribulation in verse 7. Are you with me on this? Are you following? Now, the book of life includes the names of those who get saved during the tribulation. Not just our names, but those who get saved during the tribulation in verse 8. And the Bible says the book of life belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Before the world was made. One more minute. Thank you for letting me go a little bit long tonight. Only heaven will allow us to fully comprehend what Jesus did for us. His sacrifice was far greater than Jesus hanging on the cross for six hours. I didn't realize that until much later in my life. His sacrifice began before the world was made. How do I know? The Bible tells us so in verse 8. That's why we'll worship him with an intensity and with an explosion of praise that we have never before experienced. John writes to the first century believers who were experiencing terrible persecution as well as to us today. 
Those of us who may be experiencing a difficult marriage or fighting illness or undergoing financial pressures, one day it will all be solved. The beast, the persecution, all these problems will soon be done away with, the Bible tells us in verse 9. And that's why we continue to read through the book of Revelation over and over. It's not about trying to figure out the mark of the beast. It's not about trying to figure out who the false prophet or the Antichrist is. It's written to give us hope and to remind us that life is short. God is in control. We're going to heaven. No sooner. Well, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. I used up my five minutes and then a couple more extra. So that's why we go through the book of Revelation. Are you encouraged tonight? Is it starting to come together? Next week, more current events. We're now approaching the first battle of Armageddon. Before we get there, we have the worst of the worst, the seven bowl judgments. That's the last half of the tribulation. But can I give you a spoiler alert? We come with Jesus to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. New heavens, new earth, and it's all going to be worth it all. Father, thank you so much for these dear brothers and sisters. Thank you for those that are watching online in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Vanuatu, in Canada, in other countries, and different places across the United States. Father, we pray that whether those are watching online or here in this room, that we would be encouraged, that we would realize that this book is written to give us hope, to remind us that life is short, you're in control, and we're all going to heaven. May we share that good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.